Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Well, good evening again. Welcome. Come on, guys. Make some noise. It's already awkward enough. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. The Lord is good. He is the Lord who walks in the midst of the candlesticks. He's here tonight. He has a word for us. He has entered into our praises. He's in our hearts. And so we're so grateful uh, that He is God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it wherever you are to 1 Samuel chapter 25 for our Bible study here tonight. Praise God for His Word. It is so relevant and so alive every moment for us. So you can turn there. Uh, at this time. And uh, again, let's just pray. Let's ask God to give us his, his voice tonight. It goes so much further than just the words on the page, His Spirit, the way it speaks to us, the way He speaks to us. And so, Father, we, we just thank You so much, Father, for the truth. We thank You for the Word, the anchor that we have for our souls, the hope that You give to us and that You inspire us with, and the instruction that You give. You're such a faithful Father in the way that You lead us so carefully. And so tonight, Lord, we just ask with open heart that you would please speak in such a personal, unique, and individual way to us, Lord, as we uh, work through this chapter, as we see the testimony of what you do in a life. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us clarity and vision to see our own lives and to understand your process and ways for each one of us. So, Lord, use this time tonight. Make it prophetic. Make it significant. Make it lasting and real, Lord, that we would taste of you tonight as we hear from you tonight. So we look to you tonight, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the privilege of having a front row seat to the events that lead up to the greatest inauguration of all time, and that is of King David himself, because he is being prepared by God to become the greatest king the world has ever known. But at the same time, he's also still being prepared to be God's son and to be God's child. And so there's a dual preparation going on in the life of this young man, and we get to see how it shaped up for him. And it gives us great insight to understand how God will also move in us because he is the God who's the same and these things are written for our admonition. And so we learn so much of what's going on in us by looking at what God did in David. Now, one of the things that is very common as God raises someone up, whether it's to a position like David being raised up as king or whether it's just God raising up kids as he's training us to be part of his family and a part of his household, there are extreme highs and there are extreme lows. And that is true and universal for every single one of us. Where I grew up outside of Rochester, we lived in a place where we were kind of located right in between two great amusement parks. There was one on one side of the city we lived in called Seabreeze, and that was kind of like the ghetto amusement park because of where it was located. The other one was Darien Lake or Six Flags. It's where our youth go even now each summer to six, uh, to the uh, Kingdom Bound every year. And both of those, those amusement parks were both within driving distance of where we grew up. And what they had, they both had wooden roller coasters. Seabreeze had the oldest wooden roller coaster in the United States, and Darien Lake, or Six Flags, had the largest wooden roller coaster. And we would love in the summertime, as kids, to go either to Seabreeze or Six Flags and ride the roller coasters and ride the rides, and it was such a thrill when we got to do that. But there was a law of the roller coaster. There is a law for every roller coaster universally, and that is this, that you've got to be over 42 inches to ride, (laughs) right? And so you couldn't ride it until you reached that milestone. You had to be of a certain height. And so I remember when we were kids, we would put like wads of paper in our shoes 
under the heels and we would practice like measuring up to the sign because you just couldn't wait to be old enough to get onto the roller coaster. You loved riding the roller coaster, the whole thing, when you were that age, okay? That was part of it. Now, the other law of the roller coaster is not written. Every roller coaster has the 42-inch line that you've got to pass, but there's another law of the roller coaster that's completely unwritten, but everybody knows it and everyone follows it. Do you know what it is? No one over 42 years old. <laughs> right? <laughs> you had to be over 42 inches, but if you were over 42, you weren't getting in line or getting on the ride because by the time you reach a certain age or stage in life, you're done with roller coasters. There was a big garbage can with no lid on it just outside the exit for anyone who dared break the second law because you just would have to lose your lunch you know, if you rode it because you don't like roller coasters once you reach a certain age. And so here's, here's why I, I open with that because David right now is a youth. He's being raised up. He has met the 42-inch milestone and he is very certainly on a roller coaster. This season of David's life is marked by extreme highs and extreme lows. He took out Goliath. It was an extreme high. He got a job in the palace. But then he had a setback and was demoted, and he was thrown out of the palace, and he went through an extreme low. And then, turn of events, he got his job back within the palace, and things were looking up again, and he was very high, and he thought things are going to work. It's going to work out. But then Saul got jealous of David again, threw a spear at him, and David went to an extreme low where he was thrown out of the palace and didn't know where he would go. He was a, 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 a fugitive, and Saul wanted to take his life. From there, he had other issues where he started to make some mistakes, and because of him, priests were killed. A city was savaged, and so David was low. There were some lows, but then there was a high. David said, all right, if this is what I've been dealt, I'm going to deal with it in God. He learned how to connect with God, and in the last chapter that we studied, there was a high point in David's life. He was praying about everything. God was talking to him about what he should do. He was seeing progress and flourishing development happening in his life in spite of his situation. It was really a high point for David. But as we get into chapter 25, he's going to go right back down into the low point again. And we're going to see a side of David that we have never seen. We're going to see a side of David that even David hasn't seen. Now, here's what you need to know, is that every single child of God, whether you're just being trained and prepared to be his or and you are being prepared for a specific purpose and cause, the roller coaster is a part of the process. It's a part of God's training and teaching of us. There are highs and there are lows. And I remember vividly in my own early days as a Christian, God working in my life in such a way that there were extreme highs and lows. There were days I felt very close to God and very uh, aware of God and very blessed by God. And then there were times where I thought, do I even belong to God? I can't hear him. I can't sense him. I feel like I don't even know him. There was victory and now there's defeat. And, and, and I didn't know what was going on. And there was a long time where there was a roller coaster. Things were up and things were down. And that is a very normal thing for the people of God. It happens. Now, David in this chapter is going to go into another low point as he then prepares to swing back up into a high point again. And so I want to look at David here in chapter 25 and see the law of the roller coaster. Notice with me in verse 1. It says that Samuel died and all of the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, this is just a single verse given to us concerning the death of this great prophet, priest, Samuel, who really turned the course of the entire nation. I mean, the book that we're studying is named after him. And Samuel really was a lamp in Israel. 
If you remember way back at the beginning of Samuel's ministry, really the beginning of Samuel's life, God tells us in the word that in those days, the lamp in the temple had nearly gone out, meaning that things were so dim in God's nation and in the world at that time that it almost seemed like there was no hope at all. And then God brought Samuel in and Samuel became this bright light to the nation. First of all, in and of himself, he was a light. God had filled him with his spirit and Samuel was bringing God back. He was rooting out corruption. He was reestablishing the word. He was turning the tables on government for the people of God. And he was this amazing light. And his light brought light to others. There was hope that rose up in the people of God. When Samuel would speak and the word was brought back and people's hope was brought back to life and light came in. Then Samuel was used by God to fill a lamp that is yet to be lit. And that is the lamp of David himself, who will be one of the brightest lights that Israel will ever know. And so this man, Samuel, who here his light goes out, he didn't live in vain because his light gave light to many others. And and if you can do that in your life, listen, nobody, nobody thanks a light bulb for shining, but everyone notices when it goes out. And that's exactly what happened with Samuel. He was a light to the nation, and now that he dies, things get dimmer. But it's not a dimmer in vain. It's a dimmer that will lead to a brighter. Because the light that he was gave light and created light in so many others. And someday, every one of us here, our lamp will go out. We will leave this earth. But hopefully, we'll have multiplied the light that was in us for those that we leave behind when the time comes that we go. And so Israel lamented Samuel, though they had much to celebrate because of what he had produced and accomplished. But he leaves the scene here, and David remains. David, who will shine brightly when his time comes. It says that from here David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. So he's still in the hold. He's still in preparation. He's still on the roller coaster. It's an interesting thing. If you actually map out David's travels during this season of his life, and you, you take a map and you circle the places that David goes and draw a line between them, it's, it's interesting, but you can do it, is he actually literally goes north, south, north, south, north, south, north, south. It's a roller coaster. North, south, north, south. It's just over and over again until the time that that it's finally over. And so here, David goes south into the wilderness of Paran. Well, here's what happens, verse 2. It says that there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So it's harvest time. He's calling in all of his creditors. The the, the bills are being paid. The checks are coming in. Money is flowing in this season, in this man's life. And it says that the name of the man was Nabal. Nabal means fool. And the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance But the man, and this is common, was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. And so you have this man, Nabal, he's a man of abundance. We're told that he's churlish and evil. Churlish means intense, severe, stubborn, and cruel. Evil means evil. He was evil and bad. That's the kind of man that he was. Okay, Abigail, we're told, his wife, she was a woman of understanding and of a beautiful countenance. And the idea behind that is that she held the outward reflection of an inward beauty. She was beautiful inside and out. And we're also told concerning Nabal that he was a descendant of the man Caleb, whom we knew back from the book of Judges. And so he's a part of the tribe of Judah. He's from a prominent family. And we get the idea that his wealth was an inherited wealth. 
he came from a rich family and he was now managing or enjoying those riches. He was standing on the shoulders of prominent people that had gone before him. Okay, that sets the stage. Now here comes the drama. Verse 4. It says that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him that lives in prosperity, Peace be both to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be unto all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds which were with us, we hurt them not, Neither was there anything missing unto them all the while that they were in Carmel. We watched their backs. We protected from predators and wild animals. We kept them safe from raiders and bands of those that would try to do them harm. We were a guard to them. And so David in verse 8, he says, Ask your young men and they will show you. Wherefore, now because of this, let the young men find favor in your eyes For we are come in a good day, give, I pray thee, whatsoever comes to your hand unto your servants and to your son David. Help us out, please. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh, my meat, that I have killed for my shears and give it now to men whom I know not whence they be? So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him these sayings. Okay, so David now has this thought. He says, okay, I've been a help to this man's shepherds. I have participated with him in helping him achieve his cause. And so I will appeal to his reason and to his generosity, and I will ask him to help us. We have no resource or recourse to provide for ourselves, so I will ask him for help. Now, I wonder, and this is wonder, if David at this point in his life is beginning to realize maybe God is actually raising him up to be the king. He obviously has enough boldness and he is well known enough that he can send people to greet Nabal in his name. And I wonder if David in his mind is thinking to himself that I want to change the culture in Israel if it ever does happen that I am the king. Under Saul, things are compulsory. Things are ordered. Things are demanded. Things are taken. There's a culture of fear under Saul. But I am coming to Nabal with kind of a spirit of of appealing to his compassion and of goodwill and of shared interest. And so I'm hopeful that maybe Nabal will understand that I'm not demanding anything of him, but I'm just asking him. I'm appealing to him that he would be generous. And so David sends these young men and they come with this appeal. Now, there's, there's essentially four parts to their ask. Number one is the clear, the clarity of David's identity. He just lets Nabal know who it is that is asking. And he is a part of the same tribe. They have similar strings of their background. So he tells them who he is. Second of all, he states his intention. He says, peace, peace be to you, to your goods, to your family, to everything that you have. I'm not coming in anything with any intention but peace. Number three, he informs Nabal of the situation. He says, listen, we were with your men. We were out there. We helped them. We partnered with you. And then number four, he asks two things. He asks two things of Nabal. Number one is he says, go check. Please go ask your young men and see if what I am telling you is true. Ask them their testimony concerning how we treated them out in the wilderness. And then number two As it is fit in your heart then, would you please give us something to eat? (laughs) Because we're hungry and we need it out here right now. And so this is David's thing. And Nabal's response to David is, listen, I don't care who you are. You're not worth my time and I'll keep what's mine. That's how Nabal essentially responds to David. Okay, now I do not want to preach a sermon tonight on wealth and riches and on money. 
okay? And, and probably that would be a sermon that would fall on deaf ears for most of us because I w- would gather that most of us in here are not people of, of, of riches on the level that Nabal is or where anybody's coming to us and asking us to provide them with food to feed an army, okay? But money certainly is an issue in the day that we're living in in the times that we're living in right now. And riches and rich people are an issue in the days that we're living in, in the times that we're in right now. I, I was looking for it. I saw a headline. I think I saw it as, as, as early as yesterday, but I could not find it when I looked for it again today. And in and and these days, I just read headlines. It's about all I can, can handle, you know. And so I was reading headlines, and I saw one that said something like uh, 40 people uh, possess 400, no, 400 people hold 40 trillion dollars worth of the world's wealth. That 400 people hold 40 trillion dollars in the world's wealth. Now, when when you divide that out, that's a lot of money. 400 or 40 trillion dollars is a massive number. Now, someone here, you can find that article. Maybe you saw it and you can inform me where I saw it because now I want to read it and I couldn't find it again, you know, and the whole thing. But it, it is an issue, okay? And, and what God is doing for David here in this, in this interaction, in this response, is God is teaching his son and his future king the tendencies of rich people. And that's a very important lesson for God's kids to understand, especially those that are in some form of leadership, any form of leadership, is to understand the tendencies of rich people. David's going to need to know that for himself because he will become a rich people once he becomes the king. That's what happens to kings. He will also be around rich people, and so he's got to understand their tendencies. And there are three of them. Number one is this is that rich people tend to forget where they came from. We see that in Nabal. It says that he was from the household of Caleb. He was standing on the shoulders of those that had become prominent before him, and he was the beneficiary of their wealth and of their fortune. But he had somehow forgotten that and thought that it had nothing to do with them and everything to do with him. Shall I take my meat and my flesh and my money and my food that I have done for my house? He forgot that it wasn't all from him. He didn't provide it. He had just become self-consumed. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says this. It says, you shall remember that the Lord your God, it is he that gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto your fathers as it is this day. You are not the reason you are wealthy, rich person, okay? You are wealthy because God showed favor to you and he gave you the ability to either inherit or obtain or achieve the wealth that you have. But it isn't all because of you. It's because of God. And rich people tend to forget that. The second tendency of rich people is they tend to forget what riches are for, okay? Let me tell you a secret. If you're rich, it's not for you. Okay. Now I'm not saying that I'm not preaching some communism thing where you're supposed to just give it, give it all away. No, but why does God allow some people to be rich is because his intent and hope is that they'll move it around, not give it all away, not act like they're poor. That's not the idea. It's just that they'll keep it moving. Listen to what God says through Paul in first Timothy chapter six, verse 17. God says this, he says, through Paul, he says, charge them or command them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And here's what you're to do. He says that they do good and that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. In other words, be generous and keep it moving around. That's what God wants. He says, be generous and keep it moving around. And anytime you keep it moving around and people that do it know this, more comes to you. If you are a channel, God will entrust you with more. 
If you are a hoarder, you will fall into the tendencies of rich people. They tend to forget what it's for. The third tendency of rich people is that they, for, they tend to forget what riches do. If you hoard riches to yourself, the result in your life is that you will become proud and self-absorbed, okay? That's what happened to Nabal, and that's what happens to people that just absorb and then let it stop with them. They become hardened, they become bitter, they become obsessed. It's not a good place to be. And here's the truth about wealth, is that money can either be your master or it can be your servant. There is no middle ground. It will either control you or you will control it. Money, when it is your master, says to you, hoard me, consume me, obsess about me. And if you obey it, you will become bound by it. You'll become inward, hardened, closed off, and ultimately bitter. You will lose all of your joy. But God says, concerning the wealth that he entrusts to some people, God says, give it move it around, and be generous. And if you make money your servant, the result in your life is that you will be free, you will stay soft, you will have vision and clarity to understand what and why, and you will have joy. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, the wisest man, the son of David. He says, there is he that scatters and yet increases, and there is he that withholds more than is meet or necessary, but it tends to poverty. The liberal soul, the one who moves it around, will be made fat. And he that waters, that is, spreads it around, shall be watered also himself. All right? If you just do what God says, you'll enjoy the benefits of it in your soul and also in your experience. But if you hoard it to yourself then you'll see that it tends towards poverty, even though it seems on paper like it shouldn't. Well, we see this man, Nabal, we see what's happening to him here. He has become hardened. He thinks it's all about him. He has forgotten, and he has become hardened and cold. Now, Nabal's response to David, all right, lacks empathy and lacks compassion. And it is a bit Scrooge-like. I'm not helping you, just go die. I don't care what happens to you. It is Scrooge-like, but it isn't wrong, okay? There's not one of us in here right now, all right? When I say wrong, it's not legally wrong. It's morally wrong. It's unrighteous in the eyes of God, but it is his. There's nobody that's gonna force him. Nobody should force him to write a check or provide anything for David. It is his choice to do what he wants with his own, right? I mean, it's not the right thing to do, but it is his right to do it, right? Okay, so Nabal isn't correct, but he isn't wrong. It's, it's within his right not to support, and we would all agree with that. But watch David's reaction, because David's reaction to Nabal's uh, answer is wrong. Watch David, verse 13. It says, So David said to his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men, and 200 abode by the stuff. Now, we're not told yet exactly what David's intentions are, but we're about to find out what David is about to do uh, in, in this whole thing. Watch this. It says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. But, and here's where we find out what David did do. It says, But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us, both by night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. It was a, a, a great benefit to us and to our master and his household to have David and his men there. We did our job with ease because they were really helpful to us. Now, therefore, verse 17, know and consider what you will do. 
For evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial, a son of Satan, son of the devil, that a man cannot speak to him. So Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed. So she makes a giant gyro platter. And five measures of parched corn, that's five bags of tortilla chips, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred fig newtons, and laid them on asses or donkeys. And she said unto her servants, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so, as she rode on the donkey, that she came down by the covert of the hill, and behold, David and his men came down against her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I kept all this fellow, all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained to him, and he has requited me evil for good. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by morning light any that, okay, this is King James, pisseth against the wall. The idea is I am going to kill every male that has anything to do with Nabal. Did you just hear what David just said? Someone just dropped their phone over here. <laughs> like, is this David? Like, who, wait, what? Did you just say, you know, before it was like a common culture of shared interest. Now it sounds like the mafia, right? Like, that's what the mafia does. They move into your neighborhood, they take care of the businesses, and then if you don't pay up, they kill you. Like, who, who is this man? Now, all of a sudden... This man needs a Snickers bar, right? He needs, he needs a sleeve of Fig Newtons. That's what David really needs at this time. He's hangry, but his anger has crossed the line. It has become rage, and he is ready to kill. He is going to murder this man because he has refused to help him, all right? Now, Nabal was without empathy, okay? But he was not outside of his right to say no. David's reaction is dead wrong. The way that he replies and responds to Nabal here, his reaction, okay? Now, not only is this mafia-like, but do you notice that this is also Saul-like? I mean, this is the kind of thing that Saul would do. Saul doesn't like to be refused. Saul doesn't like to be denied. Saul goes and takes what is not freely offered or freely given. And this is a side of David that we haven't seen yet. And that is the point. That is what's going on here. Okay, listen. Our reactions are not the result of the actions of others. All right? Our reactions to the things that people say to us, the things that people do to us, the things that happen to us or happen around us, our reactions are not the fault of those people that are doing, saying, or being what they're doing. Our reactions are a reflection or a revelation of what's inside of us already, okay? Anytime I get angry because of something somebody does or something somebody says, or I get bitter or I get defensive, or I get aggressive, or hostile, or I start simmering, or even if I get jealous or envious, okay, because of something someone says, something someone has, the way someone is, it isn't their fault that I am angry, jealous, bitter, whatever it is that I am. No, it is a revelation of something that's already inside of me. And my reaction to what happens is like the check engine light in my car that's letting me know that something is wrong, okay? Because it's not their fault. It is a revelation that there's anger, there's something inside of me. Why is David angry that Nabal says no? Really? I mean, he doesn't have the constitutional right to be angry, he doesn't have the legal right to be angry, but David is angry. Why? Here's why. Because David feels rejected. David feels insulted. David feels humiliated. He feels disrespected. David feels maybe unrecognized. 
I'm trying to do something here that's a totally different way than what the people of Israel have been complaining about for all of this time, and I get stomped on for it. I'm so unappreciated. I'm so unrecognized. And David is reacting based upon how he feels, not based upon what's right, okay? Now, this partially answers a couple questions. It answers, first of all, the question of, is there some Saul in David? And the answer is yes. <laughs> there is a little bit of Saul in David. And do you know there's a little bit of Saul in all of us? There's a little bit of, of, of Judas inside all of us. There's a lot of Adam inside of all of us, right? And, and God will allow things to happen to us. He'll allow us to be treated in certain ways so that we get to see what's going on inside of us. David gets to see here that there's a little bit of Saul in David. It also answers the question of why David is still going through all of this roller coaster stuff. Because he just had a really good chapter in chapter 23, remember? He was praying about everything, every little thing that happened. God, should I go do this? Yes, go do it. God, should I do this? No, don't do that right now. God, are they going to turn me over? Yeah, they're going to turn you over. I mean, David at the end of chapter 23 is like, I got it. I'm there. Put the, th put the crown on my head. Put the robe. I'm ready. I get it. I'm supposed to pray about everything. Now, in one minute, someone says, nah, Dave, not giving you food. And he's like, kill him. Kill them all. <laughs> Strap on your swords. Get in there. I don't even care. Just, I want to see blood. That's all I want to see right now. How do you go from here to, how does that happen? See, David has some growing to do. It starts to make sense. You start to understand why the roller coaster. Why is God allowing things to happen? Isn't it interesting that David is called a man after God's own heart? Can you imagine Jesus? Jesus says, go, go to the village nearest you, and you'll find a donkey tied, and say to the man that the Lord has need of him. And so Peter and, and James and John, they go and they say, hey, there's a donkey. Hey, Jesus needs him. And the guy's like, no. No, that's my donkey. I'm keeping it. It's my donkey. And they go back to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, I know you said it, but they said you can't have the donkey. And Jesus is like, get your sword. Get your sword. Get your AK. Guys, put the camo on. We are going in there. We are taking the donkey and everything. You, that's not Jesus at all, right? And yet, no, that would never be Jesus. But yet David is called a man after God's own heart. And isn't it interesting how a man after God's own heart can sometimes be so far from reflecting God's heart. And isn't it of God, isn't it God to show us where we lack what he wants to work in and bring forth out of our lives? And isn't it amazing that he can still call us people after his heart when sometimes our reactions and responses are so far from what he would ever do? It gives me hope to see that God loved David and wasn't done with him even though he wasn't ready yet. But that is the point, is that David wasn't ready yet. And if God is still letting you go through the fire and the frying pan and the roller coaster, part of the reason is because you're just not ready yet, and that's okay. I remember early in my Christian walk, and I was in the roller coaster in full swing. I mean, I was throwing up. It was ugly. It was a terrible season. And I went to visit my pastor. I didn't have an appointment, but I knew we'd be at the church. And so I went and I asked, I said, can I just talk to the pastor for a while? And, and uh, the secretary said, yeah, he's up in the sound booth. He's putting in a carpet. And so I went up into the sound booth. It was up behind the sanctuary, up, raised up a story. And he was in there and he, he was kicking carpet. So he's under the, the sound booth table and he had a bandana and his glasses and he was sweaty and he had this awful carpenter's crack. And he was like, he was there and he's kicking carpet. And he's like, what do you need? And he, he looks at me. And, and I just started. I just started pacing. And I started going, oh, and this is happening. And God is here. Where is God? Why is he doing this? And he saved me. And I know his word is true, but I can't feel him. And I don't know where he is. And I'm struggling over this. And, I, and, I, and I'm probably for 15 minutes, I'm just going out, throwing up. And he's under the table, just doosh, doosh, kicking carpet like he's not even listening to me. And then finally, I stop. And I'm like, does this guy even care? And finally, he, in the silence, he, he rolled back on his feet and he hit his head on the table as he came and his glasses kind of like were crooked on his nose and he had a bead of sweat coming off and he had this big old smile and he looked at me and he goes, brother, you're right on schedule. And then he went right back under the table and he, he kept on, right on schedule, right on schedule. That's, that's all you've got? Like that's all you've got? But can I tell you, 
that that was the perfect thing for him to say to me. And to have that soundbite and that picture inscribed in my memory for the countless times over the years when I have wondered, why, God, are you letting this happen? To have that face and those words resonating within me, brother, you're right on schedule. And you might be right now going through a time where you're saying, why is this still happening? Why am I still in the frying pan? And the word of the Lord to you is, listen, brother, sister, you're right on schedule. God knows what he's doing in the David that's not ready yet. So when Abigail saw David, she hasted and she lighted off the ass and she fell before David on her face and she bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaiden, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. He is a fool. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord whom you did send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul lives, Seeing the Lord has withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging yourself with your own hand. David has to hear this. He has to hear that people around him see what's really going on inside of him because he's hiding it from himself. Let thine enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now this blessing which your handmaid has brought unto my Lord, let it even be given to the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil has not been found in you all your days. Yet a man is risen to pursue you, speaking of Saul, and to seek your soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God, and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of the sling." And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall have appointed you ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto you nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that you have shed blood causeless or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember your handmaid. So Abigail comes to David. She drops onto her knees. She says, let the sin of all of this fall upon me. Don't regard Nabal. He is as his name is. Put the sin completely upon me. I didn't hear about it. I didn't know it. And here's what you need to know, David, is that God has a plan for your life. I know it. All of Israel knows it. We all know that Saul is pursuing you like a dead dog and like a flea. We all know that it's unjust and unrighteous. We all know that God is raising you up to be the king, and we are all ready to make you king when that time comes. But let it be known this day, David, that what you're doing right now is wrong, and that you are taking matters into your own hand, and you're seeking to inflict revenge upon someone whom it is not your place to be putting revenge upon that someone. And when the day comes that your life is preserved by God and all of your enemies perish, it will be lodged in your conscience that you went into a town and you killed a family of people because they didn't feed you. And so take heed what you do right now and remember me when that all happens, please. And he will remember her when it all happens, please. And way before that, as we'll see. And so David said to Abigail, he wakes up, he snaps out of it. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent you this day to me. Do you realize how hard it is sometimes to have a crucial conversation? I mean, there are times when, 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 when it is upon us to put someone who maybe is intimidating to us, maybe has power over us. It is our place sometimes to shake them a little bit and say, take heed what you're doing right now. And it's risky because you're like, well, is he going to kill me? Because David's there and he's got this like snarl. You know, like the hangry snarl. You know, and she's like, don't do what you're going to do. And, and, and now it's like, what's going to happen? And thank God he softens. Blessed be your advice. And blessed be you, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hand. 
For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, which has kept me back from hurting you, except you have hasted to come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. I was going to kill every single male associated with your estate. So David received of her hand that which she brought him. He received the correction and he received the gift of the food, the blessing that she brought. So important to receive correction. And he said unto her, go up in peace to your house and see I have hearkened to your voice and have accepted your person. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. Wherefore she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. Now, I don't know the scientific reasoning behind any of this. I do understand the spiritual substance of what was happening here. Nabal's heart had died within him a long time ago. The stony heart of Nabal had crystallized long, long, long ago when he closed off his compassion towards others. And now the stony heart has finally affected his physical frame. And it says that it came to pass about 10 days after that the Lord smote Nabal and he dies. There must be outflow from our lives. Anytime there is inflow and no outflow, we are becoming resource-rich, mineral-rich, and ultimately our heart spiritually grows harder and harder. It gets colder and colder. And Jesus warned us. He said that when iniquity abounds, the love of many waxes cold. There must be inflow and there must be outflow. This passage scares me a little bit because I am married to an Abigail. And sometimes I just wonder, you know, is something going to happen like one of these days? I'll just keep my, my head and my heart as clear and soft as I can, you know. It says that when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. So David rejoices in God's intervention. He learned an important lesson in this, and that is this. Do not step into the place of God. It is God's place to take vengeance upon those that harm us or do us wrong. In this case, he didn't really do David wrong. He did morally, but not really. It was really Abigail who was saved in this whole thing, not David. Okay? God's vengeance is just, it's complete, and it's fully calculated. And that's why he says it is mine to, to, to take vengeance on the whole thing. Now, David sees, he's watching, he sees Abigail, he knows Nabal's dead, he hears word of it, he watches, he sees her status change on her uh, social media, it goes from married to single, he sends a DM, he says, hey, baby, And it says that he communed with Abigail to take her to wife. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spoke unto her, saying, David sent us to you to take you to him to wife. And so she arose and she bowed herself on, uh, on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaiden be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers that went after her. And she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to faulty, that was a faulty move, the son of Laish, which was of Galim. Okay, so uh, Abigail becomes David's wife, and uh, something that, interestingly, something that was a blessing to David in this moment actually became the seed of a major problem that's developing in David's life here at this time, okay? It's the small seed of a problem yet to come. Polygamy is in the Bible, 
but it is not endorsed or accepted by God. God's intent for marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's the way it was laid out in the garden, and that's the way it was affirmed by Jesus. Yes, polygamy is reported and it was practiced, but it is never condoned and it always turns into a problem. And David has a weakness in his life that is common to all young men, okay? But he did not at this point see the need to control it or keep it in check. He was the captain of a large band. There was no one that was going to tell him that he couldn't. And so he continued to do it. Now, isn't it interesting that David was just spared from making a huge mistake by the person who became his next mistake, in a sense? Because God said that when you become a king or when you have a king, that king is not to multiply to himself wives. And I want you to listen to me because sometimes... God will intervene in your life through another person or through a circumstance to keep you from doing something stupid. That's what happened with Nabal. Abigail came and said, hey, watch what you do. And David said, okay, I'm going to check myself here. Okay. But then once it came time for David to make a decision to disobey what he knew to be the will of God, nobody intervened. Nobody came and said, David, you're not supposed to marry two women. You already have a wife. You already have a ring. Yeah, we know things aren't working out right now, but you're still a married man. Nobody did that. What did David have? David had the word. David had God's command. And David said, ah, people do it. It, it's, It's cultural. It might not be perfect, but it's not the worst thing I could ever do. Listen, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, We're going to find out this is a big deal, okay? Because sin always starts small and controllable. Sin always starts as a nominal compromise. It's not a big deal. I can turn it on. I can turn it off. I can control it and use it to my benefit, leverage it for my strength however I want, and then I can put it to the side. Yeah. Now... But the Bible warns us in the book of Hebrews about the deceitfulness of sin. And the deceitfulness of sin is that it lies to you and says that you will be able to control it indefinitely. But you can't. Because what you sow into your garden, you will reap a much larger harvest than what you initially put into the ground. Jesus said that that your heart is the soil of your soul. And the Bible says, God is not mocked whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And what you put into the ground of your heart, you can control. You can hold it in your hand. But what takes root and then grows up and then bears fruit and then drops seed, you find that very soon you can't control what has come out now of your life. And Paul the Apostle said this, that he that sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but he that sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And that's true for the good, and it's true for the bad. And David right now is sowing something into his life that will grow beyond his control, and he will sabotage the good fruit of his golden years because of the decisions that he's making early on. Isn't it interesting that the blessing of David's life is sowing the seed for something that will be destroyed later on. That happens all the time, you know that? Oh, yes, I got the job. Yes, I closed the deal. Yes, I got the girl. Yes, I, and, and, and you think, yes, this is good. And everybody says, congratulations, it's great. But what happens is that the blessing supersedes the blesser And the blessing corrupts itself over time when it's not in its right context, and it will ultimately destroy your life. And so a person comes into a season where they have more income, and they say, yes, God, you blessed me with more income. But they make the income the thing that it's all about, and all of a sudden the income now controls them, and that income that was a blessing, now it's wrecked their life. And it can happen with so many things, opportunities, happens all the time. Relationships, it happens all the time. 
A house can happen all the time. So what's the solution? You never put the blessing in front of the blesser. David would learn it. It's Psalm chapter 16, verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before my face. Because anytime you make your life about something in your life rather than God, that something, no matter how good it is, no matter how from God it is, it will turn around and bite you later on. Rest assured of it. It will happen. It happens to David here. Interesting thing that happens in this. Beware that your blessing doesn't become the seed of tomorrow's shipwreck in your life. Here's the laws of the roller coaster as we close. Here's Here's the law of the roller coaster. Number one is that the lows of the roller coaster are not setbacks, they are opportunities. The lows of the roller coaster are not setbacks, they are opportunities. For David, this is a prime opportunity for him to see things in his heart that have to die if he's going to thrive in the place that he's going. And when we hit the low points in our Christian experience, Somewhere in the rubble and the darkness of that, there is an opportunity for us to see something, feel something, learn something of ourselves, put something under the blood, repent of something and get it out of our life, see something so that we can be changed and ultimately we can come into our, our, our uh, thing that God has for us. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. Listen to this profound verse. God says this. He says, Moab has been at ease from his youth, meaning that this Moab never had any problems. Everything came easy to Moab. You ever know anybody like that? They're picked first. They're the most athletic. They don't really have to try. They're good looking. They have everything, and everything is just so easy for them. God says, Moab has been at ease from his youth, and here was the result. And he has settled on his lees. Now, that's King James, but the word is dregs. And the idea is that when they would stomp grapes to make wine and let the juice flow into the bottles, a lot of the, 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 um, the grime from the grapes would get into the juice in its first press. And so what they would do is they would let it sit in the bottle and the grime would settle to the bottom. That was called the dregs. Okay, then what they would do after the settling took place is they would carefully pour the juice out of the bottle and they would keep as much of the dregs in the original container as they could so as not to taint the wine and to purify it. And so he says that because Moab was at ease, he's become settled on his dregs. And watch this. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, from bottle to bottle, from vase to vase, from jar to jar. Neither has he gone into captivity, and here is the result, therefore his taste remained in him and his scent is not changed. In other words, if everything just happened easy for you, if, if, if there was never any trouble, if there was no roller coaster, if you weren't being poured out, you finally get into a place. I'm in a place. I'm in a vessel. I'm in, I like this place. This is a good place. It's a happy place. I like this place. And all of a sudden, you, you start to feel it. And you go, no, 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 God. No, no, I like this place. I like this place. I like this place. And God just goes, no, you're going to pour out. You're, you can't stay here. And he, and he dumps it. You go, no, no. What's going on? Why is this happening? God was with me. He wasn't with me. You're right on schedule, brother. Why is this happening? Here's why. Because you're settled in your dregs and the scent of your old man is still in you. And God is committed to making you Christ-like so that you don't go and kill an entire household of people in a moment that you're hungry. And if God is pouring you from vessel to vessel, it's because he knows that you need it right now and he's got your best interest in mind. So go with it. Go with it. Okay? You will be changed. That's the law of the roller coaster. But listen, no one over 42 years old still gets on the roller coaster. That's the good news is that the roller coaster isn't forever. There will come a point in your life and in your Christian experience where you will be done being poured out from vessel to vessel. God says to bring you to an expected end, and it doesn't go on forever. It won't go on forever for David. It didn't go on forever for me, and it won't go on forever for you. But where does it end? Here's where it ends. It ends with Jesus. 
Because John the Baptist would declare in, in Luke chapter 3, I think it's verse 35, it'll come up on the screen. He will say this concerning what Jesus does. It says that he will make every valley full and he will make every mountain low. He will make the crooked places straight and the rough places he will make smooth. And as you learn to just walk with Jesus, to trust Jesus, to let Jesus be brought forth in your life, when Jesus, like David, is ever set before your face, like Psalm 16 verse 8 says, then what happens is that the dips become leveled out. The mountains are in perspective and they're brought low. The crooked things that I couldn't see around that bend, your vision becomes clearer, it becomes straighter. And things that were rough, they become, there's a smoothness. The roller coaster flatlines. Stability comes. But if right now you're on the roller coaster, it's because you need to be on the roller coaster. Don't resist it. Don't get angry at God. Go with it. And if God says in his word, stop doing something, stop doing something, because it will come back to bite you later on if you don't. Father, we just thank you tonight for your, your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the testimony of this man, David, and your willingness, Lord, to put his life in the fishbowl for our sake. And we ask tonight, God, that you would help us to have perspective, help us to have wisdom, help us to have faith, help us to believe in your favor, help us to continue to progress even in the discomfort of being tossed back and forth, and help us, Lord, to become more like Jesus as we trust you, as we know you, as we walk with you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your shepherding, fathering hand over our lives. We put our faith in you. We trust you. We declare that you're our Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and close in song. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.